I have lived in six cities and 18 houses, which included like five apartments, a dorm room, a mobile home, a townhouse, and then like 10 other houses. And each of these places that I've lived had its own feel of personality. Like Lubbock and Albuquerque are quite a bit different. I could describe in three words, like green chili and Tex-Mex. That's how different they are, right? Kennesaw, Georgia, and Wiley, Texas were both suburbs of these great cities. Um, Did you know that if you live in Kennesaw, it's like a law that you have to own a gun, and if you don't, you're breaking the law? Now, that probably would have flown in Wiley, too, but both places were both like a little bit country, yet when we lived in one place, we didn't have kids, and when we lived in the other place, we had a whole bunch of kids. And that means I could tell you like where parks and fun kid kind of places are in one place, but maybe not so much in the other place. My experience of those two places was different. Lynchburg, Virginia, and Las Cruces are both college towns, and both are yet really different. Lynchburg has like five or six colleges and universities. Cruces has two technically, but really one. Um, and I've, if you've li- I, in Cruces, I lived in the most places that I've ever lived in one town. I lived in seven different places. I moved almost every year. I knew Cruces and Lubbock and Wiley way better than I knew Lynchburg or Kennesaw because we lived in those places like 18 years combined and then the other just like two years. So today, and in this series of Advent, we are actually examining place. What is place? Places are both these beautiful and ordinary things. There's cities and towns, buildings, geographical coordinates. Some have a rich and complicated history. Some seem to have just blown up in the middle of the night. There are a sprawl of cookie-cutter houses and chain restaurants. Some places are familiar. Ruth uh, Ann Irvin says, places with wrinkled faces of loved ones. Place is that coffee shop you love. It's the office space you hate. Places can be warm and inviting. They can be dark and distressing. But God creates the world as a place, as a place for his people, and he called it good. He emplaced humanity, creating a home in the world. At their most basic place, Places are the ground of shared human experience as well as the product of shared human experience. Place is not just a piece of ground. It's the undeniable fact of our existence in relationship with the whole of creation. Place isn't just a piece of ground. It's the reality that we are an enmeshed people. We aren't just atoms floating around. We aren't just individuals. We are in place. We have context. And in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God sends his people into various places for diverse reasons. God spoke the world into being, into places. He made Adam, breathing life into him, giving dominion over a place, the Garden of Eden. And from Adam, he created Eve and placed her in creation to help him help and complete Adam. And throughout the Old Testament, God continues to use place to draw people to himself. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years before God gave them a, gave them a place of rest in Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. God uses place for restoration and destruction, often creating parables from places. He used places to demonstrate his holiness and his power and his covenant-keeping love towards his people through promises to bring them peace and justice. 
And the New Testament is also filled with the idea of significant place and placemaking. God places himself into the story physically by sending Jesus. Born, as we read today, in a stable. His emplacement into the world creates a striking and beautiful thing. He becomes the God of the low to rise them up from sin, death, and hell. That's the image of God being born where he was in a place. What he's going to do to undo the low places. The word became flesh and dwelt among his people. So Jesus' life was full of places and people who were shaped by the influence of place. His 12 disciples, the Roman guards and centurions. He goes to places like the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately the cross. The empty tomb and the upper room are indispensable places in the Jesus story. And so remember that place is never fully a place without God as co-inhabitant. Place, thus, is always, in one way or another, a theological concept. But what that means is, is that God is very much involved in the spaces and the places that we live, work, play, act, live, do. So we're going to be journeying through Advent places. We're going to go from Nazareth this week to Bethlehem to Jerusalem to the outskirts, the fields, the countryside. Today, Nazareth. And this is the idea. You can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. Now, for illustration of this idea, there, there used to be a time, right? Some of us remember without GPS. Like, I know it's crazy, but we used to have this thing called a TomTom that we would put on the dash. Like, that was before cell phones like, had all the maps and all that kind of stuff. And now we just have a phone. But before that, we had this thing called the MapQuest, and we'd go to the Internet, and we'd print out directions, and we'd put them in so we could get someplace. And before that... There was maps. Like you had to go in and find the road on the map of where you were going to go if you were unfamiliar with the place. Now, some of this happens today. Like, like you have to know your starting point to get to the end point. Like we were doing a tour on campus last week with the folks who were here uh, to see RUF, and there's a map on UNM's campus, and we, had, we went to the map, and you had to find out where on the map you were so you could know where to go from there to get to the other places, right? That happens, the starting point. Where you come from, that starting point isn't quite as important where you're headed and where you're going, but if you don't know where you're coming from, if you don't know that history, it's going to be much more difficult to get to where you're going. So what was the starting point? Today, we aren't going all the way back, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was from Nazareth. That was his true hometown. It's where he grew up. It's where he learned how to be a carpenter and a builder. It's where he was schooled in the synagogue with his teachers about the law and about God. It's where he went from being a boy to a man. And he spent 28 years of his life or so here. And so Jesus has a place. And that place formed him and shaped him. And Jesus brought that with him as he lived those three years, journeying from Capernaum ultimately to Jerusalem and across. And God wanted it that way. Each of us this morning comes into this place, this physical location, and we carry with us the totality of our lives. Now, don't let that escape you, the immensity of that idea. 
that you come into this very local, regional, specific place with specific walls and a ceiling and all that, but you bring with you all of the history that you've lived up to this point. Some of you, that's a short history, and some of you, it's a long one. Nazareth here is mentioned two times in our text, and this forms our two points this morning. Um, verse one, uh, verses 1, 26, and 2, 4. And here's the outline. First, there is nowhere that the gospel cannot find you. And second, you can't change where you've come from, and God doesn't want you to. First, there is nowhere that the gospel cannot find you. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is in the hill country. The picture on the left is kind of a reinvention of what the city might have looked like uh, thousands of years ago. And then on the map on the right is where Nazareth was. It's 55 miles from Jerusalem. It's in the hill country, uh, 15 miles from the Sea of Galilee. It's 1,650 feet above sea level. And it sits up on a steep uh, slope of a hill. From this hill, you could look out and see all the roads... Uh, that the main road that comes from Egypt and goes up to Damascus. You could see that road, and you could even see on a clear day the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. But if you were from Nazareth, chances are you would ra- rarely both visit the road or the Sea of Galilee. In Jesus' time, this city was incredibly, it's not even a city, it's a super town, it's remote, it's small. The population was about 200. And it was so obscure that the Jewish historian Josephus didn't even include um, Nazareth in the list of the towns of Galilee. It was too obscure to even be called a town or a village. In Nazareth, water was scarce. Nazareth was the target of jokes and ridicule. We see this when Nathaniel asked uh, uh, Philip, uh, when when Philip's telling Nathaniel about Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This was the view of the day. And it will be an important part of our discussion this morning. Nazareth is a nowhere place. No one went there and few left there. And there was no reason to think that anyone important would come from it. For example, the three other locations mentioned in the passage, Galilee, Judea, Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Judea means land of the Jews. Galilee means the heathen circle. Not very nice, but it means something. Now, Nazareth doesn't really have a meaning. It's kind of almost untranslatable. There is a thought that it might be related to a Hebrew word called nestor, which means shoot or sprout. A form of the word describing the hill it sits on means watchman. But it was a nowhere place. And this is exactly where the angel Gabriel goes. I want to pause here. Jesus, the king of the world, the universe, like Superman being from Smallwell, Jesus is from Nazareth. This nowhere place. He spends the majority, the vast majority of his life in this nowhere place. And what parts of your place are nowhere places? What parts of your history are nowhere places? It's more than just like flyover states and insignificant towns. Like, where do you share your story? What things, when you share your story, do you want to forget? Do you not want anyone to know? What things are you 
tempted to hide back. Like right now, as you sit in this place, if someone were to ask you about your story, your history, what would be the things that you would be like not really wanting to talk about and not really wanting people to know about? The implication of this text is that Gabriel visits those places, that God, through his angel, his messenger, visits places like that. That word visit, when it happens in the Bible, it always indicates that an action is about to happen from upper to lower. Like an action is going to happen from a position of power and authority upon one who has no power or authority. That's what happens when God visits a place. He's going to act. And what all this means for us this morning is that God can find you when you're hiding When you're in a space feeling bad about yourself or licking your wounds, when you're feeling lost in life, when you feel isolated by guilt or shame, where you feel fears and deep regrets, even doubts, in those places, God will meet you and find you. And this is kind of one of the big ideas of the book of Luke. It has lots of subplots, but God in the book of Luke, is working out his purposes. In Luke's gospel, it's through Jesus. And in Luke's second book, Acts, it's through the apostles and the church who have been impacted by this Jesus. God is working out his purposes, and those purposes will be satisfied. And this is very much related to what we talked about last week in Romans 8. God is a God who is working out his purposes in the lives of his people. And God, because of this little nowhere town, Nazareth, God is a God who works in those nowhere places, who finds you in those nowhere places and uses those nowhere places. Jesus is called the Hound of Heaven. It's taken from the poem of Francis Thompson. The idea comes from this thing called hair coursing. Hair coursing is the pursuit of hares by dogs, two dogs, greyhounds usually. With unhurrying chase, unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, the poem says, Jesus will find you. He is the hound of heaven. There is no place life can take you or that you can go where God will not find you, where he's not ready to work in you. This goes for those we love too. Sometimes we wonder if time, distance, damage with the things that we've done will damage the hopes for restoration and healing. But the gospel says to all of us this morning, no. God is a God who goes anywhere and everywhere, and when he goes anywhere and everywhere, he is the hound of heaven, and he will find you. Second, you can't change where you've come from, and God doesn't want you to. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. Not Jesus of Bethlehem. He is Jesus the Nazarene. Joseph left Nazareth to go to Bethlehem, and that is where Jesus would be born. And he would then leave again to go to Egypt. And all of this was to fulfill prophecy. And sometimes we mistakenly think that those places are more significant due to their prophecy. There was no prophecies in the Bible related to Nazareth. But Nazareth is where Joseph and Mary lived. It's where Jesus grew up. It is where he grew in his knowledge of scriptures and people. It's where he built things. And in John's gospel, we read in chapter 1, 
When Philip introduces Jesus to Nathanael, I want you to meet this new teacher. He has all the answers for us. He can answer all the questions you have. He's here to help make sense of our story, both as Jews living under Roman occupation and your story, Nathanael. And his name is Jesus, and he's from Nazareth. And the irony is not lost on John or on Nathanael when he asks sneeringly, can anything good come from Nazareth? In this question, he's saying something about Jesus. He's questioning his origin story. Like, if this is his beginning, then why would I ever want to follow him? Let's stop for a second and do some investigation. What, what makes you want to listen to someone? Like, what makes you stop what you're doing and give someone your valuable attention? They say, I'm from here. And you know that place, or you're from that place. And there's a point of conversation, you stop and you give them your attention. Or they say, I do this for a living. And you say, oh, and you want to know more about that. Or they say their last name, and you find that name to have interest to you. Like, I go to places and say, hey, I'm Justin, I'm from Albuquerque, and I'm a pastor. Now, for some, they hear this, and they're like... And they go the other way. Or they hear this and say, oh, Albuquerque, like, like, like Breaking Bad. Yeah, I like Breaking Bad. Uh, you, I mean, I, I don't know how widely you travel, but like that is like 90% of the time, the first question I get asked. Or they say, you're a pastor? Really? I've nev- never met a pastor. And then they proceed to call me priest the rest of the time that we're together. Like, what makes you want to stop and listen? And what does that say about you? Like, I'm guilty. I, I hear certain things about someone or some place or something, and my interest grows. And I hear other things, and my interest wanes. This attitude is typical in us as human beings, right? One person looking down on another person, one neighborhood looking down on another neighborhood, one school looking down on another school. Like, we all do this. We all do it. That person's from there. They went there. They live there. They they do that. They believe that. Jesus is from Nazareth. And to everyone, this meant, really? And Nathaniel is at best an intellectual snob and at worst a bigot. But how can anyone come from that backwater town, Nazareth? Like, Like, smart, influential, cool, the right people. They're not from there. When you hear where they're from, you snicker, you roll your eyes. You're telling me this guy has the answers and he comes from Nazareth. Now, this is a serious question, by the way. Like, how can this Galilean fulfill messianic prophecies that the Bible has been announcing for thousands of years? Like, Nathaniel, at one level, like, that is like a real question. How can this guy do that? Why is it significant? Because God chose to have his son, the savior of the universe, come from here. This reflects, by the way, Mary's prayer in Luke 1, the Magnificat, a primary Advent reading for the church. He has scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty. He's exalted the humble. He has sent away the rich and risen up the small. That's what Mary, the mother of Jesus, would pray after hearing that she would give birth to this Jesus. 
The Apostle Paul, riffing maybe on that in 1 Corinthians, says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. God chose the, lo- the, 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 the despised things, the things that are not. The despised things in the economy of the Bible become lovely things. Now, there's one option here with Nazareth prophetically. In Isaiah 11:1. 1, the promise is made to David. A root shall grow from the stock of, G, stock of Jesse, and a branch. That word is that word netzer, from which kind of Nazareth is related. He is a sprout. A sprout doesn't look, like, look much when it's in the ground. It's easily trampled on, easily overlooked. It's microscopic in nature. Jesus is that shoot. We also see this. In Isaiah 52, verses 2 and 3, um, it said, the prophet Isaiah says, This servant grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty, no majesty to draw our eyes. When reading this, the commentator David Bruner says, The suffering servant of God, whose roots were transplanted first from Bethlehem to Egypt and then from Egypt into the parched ground of Nazareth. He came to take a low place in history with us and for us, just as he submitted to baptism with all the sinners. Even the town where he would grow up, the town that became half his name, indicates half the truth about him, his true humanity, the truth that is later nailed over his head on the wood. Jesus of Nazareth, his lowliness, the king of the Jews, his majesty. Bruner goes on. He who in chapter 1 was rightly regally called God saves and the, the with us God is uniformly and more modestly called Jesus of Nazareth. God visits us in great modesty. He shall be called a Nazarene. God is always less or behaves more lowly than humans think God should or could act. As we will have occasion to see again and again throughout the gospel, Jesus lives this low-profile life and goes this low-profile way intentionally. This is our Jesus. Jesus the Nazarene, consecrated from the first to God coming from a nowhere town. What does that say to you this morning? Because you and I can't change where we come from. That lowliness, that sin story, that painful place. And God doesn't want you to. Because Jesus has represented us in this lowliness means that Jesus is the man for us, the human for us. And an interesting thing happens to a lot of Christ followers. When they come to know this Jesus, the Nazarene, they not only leave their lifestyle behind, which healthy in one sense, but they also leave their identity sometimes as well, almost as though, as they, as though they've entered a witness protection program. Even though everyone remembers them and who they were and where they come from, and what this does, it creates an artificial expression of our faith because to remove my story as it really is, to remove the context of that story, is to in some ways almost remove the power of the gospel in me. 
the faith, instead of being a story of a transformed life, becomes a story of a perfect person with no past and therefore nothing that others can relate to. It isn't real. The story of the gospel is that God enters into our lowliness, our mess. God has ordained your life to map out a way that weaves who you have been into where you will go and how you will serve. Jesus meets us in these places, these places where we're trying to scrub away the identities that we're trying to erase. And then he takes these low places and they become places of glory and honor and praise, places of redemption. So to, to this, I would say, don't run from your past but instead embrace it, not for the purpose of bragging about it or repeating it, but to accept it as the place where God met you and did something for you and to you. What does Christ want there? He wants you. He wants you to embrace who you are and have been because in doing so, you grasp the great things that he's done for you and what he will do through you. And in some sense, you will grab a piece of him, his humility and lowliness, as you do so. And so the moment you stop hiding and pretending, you are free. And with that liberty, you become to your world what Jesus became to your world. And what did Jesus become? Well, Jesus became that shame that you so easily hide from. Jesus became the sin we so readily deny. Jesus became the sorrow we so sadly carry. He became the flesh we so often want to crawl out of. He comes to us in the flesh, lives sinless in the flesh, dies in the flesh to bring that flesh, that origin story to God. And then to use that origin story in other people's story to bring them to God. That's what a story of redemption is. And he did this in love. We read in Hebrews 2, the writer of Hebrews says, In bringing many sons to glory, it is fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. This is what Jesus is doing through your story. Your stories of suffering. Your stories of affliction. Your stories right now that are longing for God to do something. When you think about impossible prayer requests, you have something that comes to your mind because you know it seems impossible. It's even, you don't even want to say it on your lips because it seems so hard, so debilitating. It's into those places that God comes. And through that, there's this beautiful mechanism that the gospel does its incredible work and makes us out of that holy and brothers of Jesus. Where in the presence of the congregation, Jesus will sing with you, these are my brothers and my sisters, in praise to God. I love how the Nathaniel story finishes. After his prejudicial comments about Jesus and his dismissal of him, Jesus tells him, hey, hey, Nathaniel, I saw you under that tree. Now, what was Nathaniel doing under that tree? We, We don't really know. Nobody knows. But Nathaniel couldn't believe that Jesus saw him and knew him in this way. 
This private moment that whatever it was that Nathaniel experienced under that tree was so significant and astounding to Nathaniel that the minute Jesus says this, remember, he just said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In the very next breath, Jesus says, I saw you under that tree, Nathaniel, and immediately his eyes are opened and he believes and affirms Jesus as the anointed one sent from God. Bruner says this about this miracle. Jesus' first two recorded miracles in John's narrative, Peter naming and now Peter's naming and now Nathaniel's identifying, are Jesus knowing and telling two different people who they are or are to be after having just met them. Jesus' knowledge of who people are or who they are going to be strikes us as miraculous. Jesus knows your and I's identity, where we come from, the things we're trying to hide about ourselves. He knows us deep down inside, and he wants them to know who they are or are going to be as well, and to know what he thinks of them. Jesus values people who come to him very much, even as Nathaniel came to him. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And very much wants to communicate to them his high evaluation of them. See, there's nowhere that the gospel can't find you. In Nazareth or over there sitting under the fig tree. And even though this is your origin story, this place, this thing, this name, God doesn't necessarily want to change that. He wants you to know who you are or were, and who you're going to be. And most importantly, what he thinks of you and how Jesus gets in the middle of all of it and redeems it. Jesus ends by saying to Nathaniel, that's all it took? Me seeing you under a fig tree? You're going to see a lot greater things than that, Nathaniel. You're going to see angels ascending and descending upon me. Now, Jesus is referring to a time in the story of the Bible where a man named Jacob falls asleep and has a dream about a ladder between heaven and earth. And angels are going up and down on this ladder. Angels, like Gabriel, are messengers. They signify royalty. They're a sign of God's presence. They visit. They bring news. Because of sin, there's this this slab, this concrete slab between heaven and earth, a, a wall between us. And Jacob's vision was that one day there will be a connection again between the two. There will be a way for God to be with us and for us to be with God. And so here, Jesus claims to Nathaniel, he's the one that's going to make that happen. He's the bridge between heaven and earth. And Jesus probably chuckles when he hears Nathaniel's response to that he's the Messiah You probably think, Nathaniel, I'm going to throw down on Rome, but I'm going to do much greater things than that. Doing that wouldn't change humanity. It wouldn't change the world. And I've come to defeat evil. I've come to to put away death. I've come to renew the world. Nathaniel, I'm the jackhammer. And by my life and death, I'm going to punch a hole between heaven and earth. And this is the message of Advent. Jesus is the jackhammer punching a hole between heaven and earth by his very own body, through his very own story. And he will do the same to you and through your story. Heaven meets earth in and through you 
as you have been changed by Jesus Christ. And redemption comes in and through you. This is the amazing part of the narrative, church, that redemption, God allows us to participate in redemption through those very stories. Through your life, he is punching a hole between the concrete slab between heaven and earth. Your story becomes the jackhammer. Real people, real places are the touch point for other people's redemption. No airy, ethereal thing, like no sentimental kind of story, but real stories that touch real ground. And your life becomes the conduit through which the charge of heaven meets earth. Jesus was the jackhammer, and you are the ground, the live wire. The message of Advent is telling you, no matter where you come from, no matter what your story is, Jesus is going to use that story to bring others to God. Let's pray. God, as we come uh, to the table this morning, we, we see this kind of in living color, the ways that you take these very ordinary, embodied, actual, physical things and you make them conduits of grace for us. Like we, we need grace. Like we need grace to believe that you're a God that does these sorts of things in us. That you're a God that finds us wherever we come from, even backwater towns that Na- like Nazareth. And why we can't change that. You, you don't want that. You want to use that in our lives and in other people's lives for your glory. So I pray this morning that you would give us a vision of that during this Advent season. That that many of us are waiting for you to do something. Like in us, like we want you to do something to change us. We're, we're, We're tired of struggling with the same things. We're tired of our marriages being a struggle. We're tired of not being able to relate to our families well. We're tired of being anxious and afraid. Like right, like right now, we, we know of people who are broken and hurting and sick, and we, we want you to, to come, like to rend the heavens and come down and to do something. And so we wait. We pray, we ask. This morning, I pray that you would help us with new eyes to see that you intend to do and complete this work. Like you intend to do it through the the very stories that we're struggling through, the losses that we're experiencing, the things we're sad and angry about. So I pray that you would help us this morning to, to see this. Just like you lived your life in Nazareth, and that history you shaped and formed Christ, that you intend to do the same with us. Here in Albuquerque, this nowhere place, we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.